Welcome to a new edition of the Neon Jazz Interview Series with jazz composer, saxophonist, band leader, and teacher, Kirsten Edkins. She talked about her new 2024 CD called Shapes and Sound and her life in music. This is her sophomore album featuring Gerald Clayton on piano and a bevy of great L.A. musicians. She has been a professional since 16 and is a graduate of the Eastman School of Music. She has been a glowing fixture of the Los Angeles music scene for the past decade and a half. She's been a member of several Grammy award-winning bands and continues to evolve into one of the best in jazz today. Dig this interview. First and foremost, thanks for taking a minute out. I really, really enjoyed your album, and I'm, and I'm looking forward to getting into it. Oh, that's so cool. Thank you. Yeah, thank you for taking the time out of your day. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and before we get into the new album, I want to uh-huh. know, how did you survive the pandemic? The last three and a half years was quite, quite an ordeal. How did you get through it? How did it change you? Yeah, that's such a good question. I feel like if we knew everybody's story, we would be really shocked, even people that we know very well. Um, sometimes I wonder the same thing from uh, some of my colleagues, and I'm, you know, you kind of kind of afraid to ask um, because it either was a time that someone was able to kind of find their way uh, and, and define their way even more, um, whether that was through introspection or diving into a project. Uh, but then I know there were so many tragedies that happened too. Uh, but yeah, I, you know, I was fortunate. Um, I was somewhat of a newlywed and my husband and I were locked um, in a small place together, but we actually did really well. Um, you know, had fun uh, coming up with new recipes and, um, Catching up on on TV shows, um, I, I somewhat grew up without watching a lot of TV, so um, he was kind of exposing me to uh, years that I had missed. <laughs> um, but yeah, it, you know, the hardest part actually was coming out of the pandemic um, for myself. Um, like I said, the pandemic itself, I was fortunate to not have to, uh, you know, I didn't go through anything real rough. I, I did have a couple, um, like a sinus surgery, and uh, it was a good time to do that because your sinuses affect, you know, playing music. Um, but coming out of the pandemic, and actually my project kind of was in the middle of the pandemic, and that was a very interesting thing to uh, to to pursue because this particular project was recorded the old-fashioned way where it was all live in full takes. Um, and, and this happened while we were all, I mean, it was 2021 and in L.A., everything was pretty locked down. Uh, there were windows, months here and there where things got better, but then like thing, the the counts of, for COVID uh, cases were going up, um, especially right before my project. So um, that was very vulnerable to have to uh, to go into this session and have it be, uh, you know, not the, the way that us modern musicians are used to. So, so that was interesting. That was an interesting uh, endeavor. Um, but yes, you know, it's, it's, it was such a crazy time and 
I'm glad things are looking better, um, but it was very eye-opening. So talk to me about this latest album. Kind of how did you artistically put this album together? What was kind of the approach? So it was a collaboration, kind of. I mean, it's my record, but a collaboration with this fantastic music uh, mastering genius, uh, Kevin Gray. And he, he had always wanted to start a new label. He's really well, like, he's really well known within the vinyl world. Um, he's remastered thousands of albums, classic Blue Note and all the new Blue Note and also, uh, a lot of pop albums. If you look him up, you'll find everything he's worked on. Um, so he had built this studio from scratch for, um, and he, built everything, all the tube equipment, um, and it took about 17 years, I believe. So he found out about me um, actually through my husband, and he heard my first album probably about seven years ago. And I guess he hadn't told me this, but he thought in his own mind that he he had the thought, like, I want to work with Kirsten one day. So he brought me over during the pandemic and had me test out, uh, you know, just just how my sax sounded in his room. And, and by the way, this room, it's pretty cool. It's an exact replica of Rudy Van Geller's uh, Hackensack studio. And so some people are calling it Hackensack West. And we, uh, anyways, we ended up putting together like a test run. And then the test run went so well with the band that he's like, okay, next month we're going to record this. Um, so yeah, we, we threw together, you know, luckily I had been working on writing some tunes and we threw together the session and it turned out great. Well, and you can tell, and that's the thing, I, I, I feel that warmth and that glow and now it all makes sense because I'm familiar with Kevin. I mean, Rudy Van Geller, that's legendary. So all of that absolutely makes sense. So Ultimately, at the end of the day, I know how I felt listening to this. What are you hoping, ultimately, that the listener gets from this album? Yeah, you know, it's interesting. When I was younger, I didn't really, I thought about just playing well, doing a good job, maybe impressing the other musicians. But the longer that I've played, I guess I've been on the scene for, let me do the math real quick, probably almost 20, yeah, almost 20 years. And the longer that I play, and more recently, probably in the last seven years, six years, I've really thought about the audience a lot more. And I'm kind of embarrassed that I hadn't in the past. But I think I'm an introspective person. And I think that when I play, and I'll get back to your exact question, but when I play, I try to integrate who I am through my saxophone and through the songs I write. And I hope that people can just be inspired by that. And hopefully, you know, art can inspire other people. So I hope to inspire them to, to, you know, create within their own lives, whether that's playing an instrument or just creating beauty around them. Um, and I hope that, I mean, I hope that my music brings a smile. I, I always try to generally write songs that have something to grab onto, um, like a, you know, melodic piece of the tune, um, 
or even just a cool groove, something that feels good. So how did this journey into the jazz and, and music, how did all of this begin for you? Well, I grew up in Orange County, California, and uh, the music department, the, the whole school district was known for their music departments. Uh, my older brother played trumpet, and I played a little piano when I was younger. And, and when I heard my brother perform this particular year, it was before I played sax, there were five, there were, let's see, four saxophone players that were female. And in my mind, my uh, nine-year-old mind, I thought, oh, great, saxophones, it looks cool, but females can play it. And so in my mind, I was like, oh, okay, this is, there's this path carved out for me, like at least for my, my, uh, or my public school years that, yeah, this is a female instrument, this is a, a cool instrument. It's not like, you know, I, I never was like a girl that was playing with Barbies and stuff like that. So um, little did I know that I would be one of very few females in the industry, um, which is fine. But uh, that was kind of one of the things that I saw when I was young and inspired me. And then right away, I was so fortunate that I lived in an area of California where there were just so many great musicians and being close to Disneyland. I mean, I don't know if you know the history of music at Disneyland, but like Buddy Rich's band would go through there, right? And Count Basie um, back in the day. And so there's this whole musical lineage of Disneyland. I mean, it's changed through years, but there are fantastic musicians that play there. And in the 90s, when I was uh, growing up, I was fortunate to study with a couple of guys that played at Disneyland, had connections to Disneyland. Um, so, yeah, they really inspired me and uh, saw some talent in me. And then I just continued on that path, started studying with someone in Los Angeles that's, you know, a great musician. And, and the, you know, fire kind of started in me. So what was the first live jazz show that you saw that blew you away? Oh, yeah, good question. Well, when I was older in high school, about a junior, I started studying with uh, the saxophone player Bob Shepard. And at the time, he was on tour with Joni Mitchell. Um, and then, like, a couple years later with Steely Dan. So, I mean, he was out there doing all these really cool things. And when I first heard him play, um, I don't know if you know a trumpet player named Clay Jenkins? Yeah, Absolutely. Okay, cool. Yeah, Clay was our connection. Uh, Clay said, oh, yeah, you got to study with this guy. He's, you know, he's really cool, really amazing saxophone player. I think you're ready for for that. And so I, I heard Clay play uh, with Bob, and at that time they were working a lot with Joe LaBarbera's band. That's, uh, you know, he played with Bill Evans. Um, you probably know Joe. Yes, you know? absolutely. Yeah, Cool. So Joe had a quintet, and they would play monthly in Los Angeles. So I had a couple friends in high school that were also eating, you know, eating, breathing jazz, <laughs> exposing me to all the classic recordings. Uh, so we would drive up to Los Angeles and hear this band almost, I'd say like once a month. We were kind of groupies. I don't know if they noticed us, but <laughs> we were following them all over the town. 
Yeah, and oh my gosh, just hearing them play uh, with such fire and personality really drew me in. So what about influences, albums or any early influences that really kind of, you know, shaped the way that you made your sound and approached the instrument? Yeah, when I was younger, I played alto exclusively. And, of course, on alto, I was inspired by all the classic guys. Uh, but for a period of time, I mean, Kenny Jarrett was the guy that I tried to emulate. So I was, I was very inspired by that raw sound. And then when I went to college... I studied with a great saxophone player, uh, Walt Weisskopf, and he would just, he would come from New York City up to Rochester where I went to school, and he'd only bring his tenor. So when we were playing in lessons, it was, I mean, there was this enormous tenor sound coming at me, and then I was on my alto, you know, like just trying to, trying to kind of find where my sounds fit in with that. And I mean, it was, it was great, but it, it, it also kind of made me think like I had a tenor. I didn't like playing tenor. Um, but he found out about that. And one semester in, he said, Hey, bring your tenor uh, from California and let's just see if we can get you feeling pretty good about tenor. And I went home for a Christmas break and I just dove into the tenor because I had already been listening to tenor players on the alto. Um, of course, you know, Coltrane, Sonny Rollins, all the great tenor players. And I almost preferred the sound of tenor, but yet I liked playing alto. Um, anyways, over this break, a couple weeks, something clicked, and I just started finding my voice on tenor. And when I went back to school, I also found out about Rich Perry, great New York saxophone player, and and then I like further kind of dove into Joe Henderson. Um, I've I've always been inspired by people that are a little bit quirky. So I mean I never I've been influenced by players that were really into Michael Brecker, but I never really connected with him personally. So I was always drawn. You know he's I mean he's flawless and amazing. And I have respect, but like I've always kind of been drawn to more of like this, not to say, of course, I'm careful with my words because I don't want to, there is humanness in Michael Brecker, but I hear, I guess, my own humanness in Joe Henderson and um, and even uh, I love Eddie Harris. Um, not so much like he had such a, diverse career so there are certain records where um oh yeah you mentioned a record so one record of eddie harris i love is the in sound he plays uh shadow of your smile and a couple other standards born to be blue um but i just loved the thoughtfulness thoughtfulness in his playing and just how one note would just grab you so that's what I For sure. Yeah, that's what I try to yeah. do. Just be real thoughtful about what I'm playing. So on this journey of being a professional musician, there's all kinds of uh, there's a myriad of things that go into it. But what do you look forward to the most? What do you like the best about being a professional musician? 
I love the diversity of what I get to do. Um, I, I think if I only did one aspect of my job, I would get bored. So I love that I get to, uh, I, I love that I get to leave my own band and I'm, I'm hoping to do more of that. And I'm hoping that when people hear my music, uh, you know, some new opportunities come up and I can develop some new fans. Um, but but in addition to that, I love getting to play with other fantastic musicians here in L.A., but also sometimes other places. Um, it's fun to to be on a band and be surrounded by people that approach music a little different. Um, so I, I love that aspect. And I like writing songs. I, I like teaching. I teach a little bit. And I love getting to communicate the language um, and even just the process to other people. So, yeah, those are a few things that I, I really treasure. So as a teacher, you know, you've talked about some heavy names and people that you've been around from Walt to Bob. What have you taken from the elder statesmen of jazz and in turn tried to teach the younger generations that you're around? One thing I notice about a really good teacher is they're able to see the individual. A, a lot of the times, I, I see some I see some real beautiful things in music education, but then I see some holes. And maybe that's from me being a sensitive person uh, where I'm aware of, like, certain people's needs. Um, yeah, it's just an interesting thing to sort of think about. Like, I went through jazz education from junior high all the way through college. And then, you know, even at my, at my uh, current stage, sometimes I'll get a lesson from um, a friend, you know, and just kind of see their approach. But what I love to do, like I said, is see the individual and, uh, and really tailor my teaching to where they're at. And I would say that I had one teacher that was very good at that. Maybe like a maybe another one too, um, but yeah, a lot of the time jazz is just kind of taught like, hey, here's how you, here's how you get great technique, and and here's how you uh, peak in a solo and stuff like that, where it's not really personalized um, to like making sure that someone's grasping something, and that they're even that the process is really creative rather than just like a formula, um, you know, like learning math. It's like, here's these formulas, here's this way to do it, go. Um, sometimes the same thing happens in jazz with music education. So I think that if there's a way to bring somebody's personality and like what innately, like develop what innately comes uh you know, what comes naturally to them, like, oh, this person's sound is really, really, um, really sweet or really uh, edgy or whatever it might be, just like developing that and um, helping them on the journey. So, so certain educators were able to do that with me, and I really appreciate that. So, simply put, why do you love jazz? Yeah, um, well... I mean, the the same thing that 
probably so many other people feel is that it has so much personality and expression. Um, it, it drew me in because of that. And when I was younger, the complexities really drew me in. I think at this stage in my life, I really like the idiosyncrasies and the personality you could put into music. Um, I think that there's lots of room for expression, which is, I mean, so important in life um, to find things that you can share yourself through, either for your own self or for building up like a community. Um, yeah, those are those are some of the things. And I also see a beauty in collaborating with people. And I and I like that about jazz. So if you could get into a time machine and see a dream show, any any show in the history of jazz, where are you going? Who are you going to see? Hmm. Well, I mean, some current people that I love. Like, I will say this person comes to mind right away because he gives me chills, is Gregory Porter. I love Gregory Porter. Are you familiar with him? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, yeah. I actually have kind of a weird history with Gregory Porter. So, yeah, I... Oh, cool. Uh, I, yeah, I got years ago, they were making a documentary about him, and they they released this uh, challenge to people around the world to come up with music based on this soundtrack to the movie they were making about him. And mm-hmm. some man in Milan listened to my show for years and loved to plug the Hubert Laws did about my show and incorporated that into a song that I gave permission to and wrote off on it. So... Maybe at some point, like, I don't know, 30 or 40 years down the line, I'm going to get a check for three cents with royalties <laughs> on it. <laughs> right. So, anyway, yeah, no. How he, funny. That's yeah. great. Yeah, but no, yeah, he's, he's amazing. Uh, gosh, I mean, along those lines, uh, not to compare him to Johnny Hartman, because, because Gregory Porter is his own self, but uh, I, would, I would have loved to hear Johnny Hartman. Um. I mean, Duke, Duke Ellington would have been awesome. I love, like, the album of, of him and Train and just all the recordings with Johnny, uh, yeah, uh, with uh, Johnny Hodges. Um, I could see Johnny Hodges would have been really cool. And then I would have loved to hear Eddie Harris. Though I have heard recordings of him with all his dialogue at concerts, and while it's funny, I feel like he would have definitely insulted me with some of his things that he would go off on. Yeah, it's it's a different era, that's for sure. Um, mm-hmm. So at the end of the day, you know, everyone has a perception of you, family, friends, fans, students, but ultimately you run the show. What's your perception of you? Who do you think you are? I feel like I'm always evolving, um, and then I'm always trying to integrate who I am into music. Um, I hope to be a thoughtful person, someone that, re- le- uh, sorry, leaves room for other people. Um, yeah, someone that thinks before just making assumptions about other people. Um, yeah, those are the things that I... Yeah, someone that sees the people around them. That's what I hope. And I hope my music leaves room for that. So 
any live shows that are coming up, best place to pick up the album, any of the good business? Yeah, I do have a run of gigs here in California, but I am working on an Arizona uh, lineup and there's some other things in the works. Um, and then, of course, I'm always playing in other people's bands, so I do have some more shows there. Uh, yeah, I would love to come to Kansas City. That's actually where I was right before the pandemic. I did something in, I think that was my last gig before the shutdown. Wow, where were you at? I was at a jazz festival. Um, I, I, I'll do the research. I'll shoot you an email. But I was at a okay. jazz festival, and it was with some high school, like a bunch of high schools. Oh, cool. Okay. Excellent. Yeah. Yeah. I, yeah. I, I remember that weekend well. I The last thing I did was saw Dexter Gordon's wife, Maxine, give a uh, lecture with Deborah Brown about the book on uh, Dexter Gordon. And I remember she autographed the book, March 12th, 2020. And I remember walking out because that was when everybody was doing elbow bump and we didn't know what was happening. And as we, of course, got into the summer, I was like, that's probably one of the most profound autographs I've ever received in my life. I never thought at that point that it would, but having that date on there was quite profound. But yeah, I remember wow. that weekend well. Everything closed up pretty quick. Yes. Oh, so, yes. What a weird time. Was, yeah. Yeah, it was, it was very weird. Well, this has been wonderful. Again, I love the album. And um, I appreciate you taking a minute out. Best of luck with everything as the year unfolds. Thank you so much. And, oh, I didn't answer one question. You asked where to get the music. There yeah. is, let's see, the vinyl, which did really well. Uh, it went through three printings uh, or pressing. That is sold through Acoustic Sounds. And then my music is available, Bandcamp, um, and then all the streaming services. Thanks for your Excellent. interest with that. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, so it's all over. Excellent. Again, hey, thank you so much for taking some time out. Best of luck with everything. Thank you, Joe. Thanks for listening and tuning in to another Neon Jazz interview, where we give you a bit of insight into the finest players and minds in L.A., New York City, Kansas City, and spots all over the globe giving fans all that jazz. Thanks to Kirsten for her time, energy, and story. If you want to hear more Neon Jazz interviews, you can find us on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Subscribe to us at YouTube. And for everything Neon Jazz, go to the neonjazz.blogspot.com. Until next time, enjoy the jazz, my friends. Neon Jazz.